Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. This episode features one of the three guests on my hour-long NPR show, heard every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who's created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the family-owned foreman pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. Good enough for you to eat, but your cats won't appreciate that. I met a most extraordinary young woman. I say young because now it turns out I'm so old that I think all doctors and policemen look young. She was so dynamic and so fabulous. I met her at the veterinary conference VMX in Merck, had a very nice media gathering. And people were whispering to me, you should talk to Nicole Bruno. I said, I should? Oh, yeah. So I got online. There were many people wanting to talk to Nicole. And it turns out she is, in my mind, one of the most extraordinary young veterinarians and thought leaders that, that I've come across in a long time. She created a group called Blend, and I'm going to let Nicole explain it. Nicole, I'm really glad that we get a chance to talk and tell people about having met each other because you meeting me was probably just yet another person you met. For me, it was really very moving. I felt that your story cool. of how you chose to become a veterinarian and immediately knew the challenges of being black in a white industry or profession and what you did about that, even when you were at Cornell, but what you've done since then in creating Blend, I think is a fabulous example of someone lighting a candle instead of just cursing the darkness. So congratulations on the work you have been doing and will obviously continue to do. But I, I would love to just sort of start where we started, which is you're a girl from Queens who had this dream of being a veterinarian, which so many I, – I've never heard of a vet who decided later in life to become a veterinarian, like even in college. Everyone kind of knew young. Um, talk a little bit about your mom and, and her part in, in encouraging and supporting you in, in having a career that was untraditional. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And for all of those um, compliments in the beginning part, I wanted to chime in and say thank you. It really means a lot <laughs> to me. Um, but yes, I am a girl from Queens, New York. I was born and raised. Um, I'm biracial. My mom is black and my father's Colombian. And my mom was an educator. And she, you know, always had the mindset of like asking both of her children, my sister and I, who happened to both be veterinarians. I know. I know incredible. We had that share that story with you, Bart, yes. before, but, you know, she always had that mindset of, like, you know, 
making sure that we saw ourselves in the professions that we pursued. And, you know, one day at the age of 12, I just said, mom, I want to be a veterinarian. I don't even remember the conversation. I just remember what my mom did with that conversation. Um, she immediately started making phone calls and, um, you know, found through family friends, two black men who were veterinarians in practicing in Yonkers, New York. And she drove me up there one Saturday morning and I got to experience working with a veterinarian and I saw surgery and went into appointments and that really just solidified like this is what I want to do. Um, but, you know, after that, it was really challenging to find those opportunities closer to my home. And, you know, because there was a different time then, um, it, no Internet, you know, no Google for me to really right. research. So my mom played a huge role in getting those resources for me, whether they were subscribing to magazines in the animal industry or buying me books on how to become a veterinarian and the process of it. I mean, I really credit so much of my staying in the pipeline during an age that could easily be, you know, where I changed my mind. Yes. Um, you know, I credit so much of that to her. Well, yeah, I got that. I got that impression really strongly um, when we first talked. And then what became interesting, because I have just become aware of the topic of diversity and inclusion in the veterinary field. I was unaware of it. And as I've, I've now spoken to many people and will continue to have interviews about it, with many people in the veterinary space who are part of the non-white veterinary space. And they said, well, of course, why would you be aware of it? Because you never experienced that, that, that uh, otherness that we have felt. I, I'm, you know, I'm using a very neutral word. There may have yeah. been racism and nastiness, but at least the otherness and the feeling that you don't belong and not finding someone to look who looks like you which was an extraordinary thing that your mother as an educator realized immediately that you, you have to see, oh, there's, there's people that are already doing this and there's a comfort level in that. But where you got educated was really interesting. The whole issue of historically black universities and Tuskegee being one that has a veterinary school and Cornell being one of the top, if, if we care about things like the top this and the best that, certainly one of the top most famous two or three veterinary colleges. Talk about why you picked Cornell versus a historically black university. So I did attend Tuskegee for undergrad and a lot of it had to do with my mom's wanting desire to make sure that I saw myself in this profession. And, you know, the caveat was, oh, the vet school's across the street. Right. So definitely an opportunity for me to like see the path, like see yes. where I could be going. So I never had any doubt that I was going to um, leave Tuskegee. I mean, it took a while for me to want to go there because it, it is in Alabama and That's I am right. a New Yorker, mm -hmm. you know, so that was a huge jump for me. Um, I didn't necessarily want to go far away for college in the first place. So that was already stepping outside of my comfort zone. But once I was there at Tuskegee, it really changed so much for me because I was now in classes with people that look like me that all wanted to be veterinarians. Like it was right. like we were our own support. And yeah. that was something I had never felt before because, you know, even if you go to high school, not everybody wants to be a vet Heaven's in your high no. school class. So you so you are by yourself in that regard. But, you know, now I was finally in a place where everybody wanted to do this. And so I wanted to stay, but I applied to veterinary school during 9-11. Um, and that was really challenging being away from home. And even when, not, I remember when 9-11 happened, like the 
the fear I had not being able to reach my family. Right. And so it really put that distance like to light. It's like, I'm away from home and I don't know what's happening. And, you know, there's a lot of other things that were happening that year personally that made me say, okay, well, maybe I should apply to more than just one vet school. And when I got accepted to Cornell, it was a very bittersweet moment, mostly because I was so excited that I was going to be a vet. Like, yes. you know, it's very hard to get into veterinary school. It and is. so I was really excited about that. Um, but I also had that, oh, my goodness, what if I'm the only person of color right. in my class? Did that and turn out to be the case? that's that everybody feels. Actually, no. And I very, very, and I always talk about this, too. I was very fortunate to be a part of the class of 2006 because we are the most diverse class that Cornell has had. And um, because of that, you know, and I think the type of people we were in that class, you know, we really wanted to make a difference. And we did that at Cornell. And you made a big difference in your sister's life in terms of what she wanted to do with her life and where she went to school, right? Yeah, so she, you know, my sister is, we're six years apart. And she is, you know, she's always had her own path that she wanted to take in this space. And she certainly has done that. But I did try to make sure that, you know, when I was entering, you know, new spaces that I always had the mindset of thinking about, well, if it looked like this for me, how can I make it better for Jasmine? You know, and I don't think she necessarily wanted to always follow me. We did go to two separate undergrads. And, you know, we did ultimately go to the same vet school. And, you know, because of the years apart, we weren't there during the same time. But Bruno's a pretty unique name. And so she did, (laughs) I'm sure, have to walk in the, you know, in some cases, the shadow of having an older sister named Nicole Bruno. But, you know, she's, I mean, she's phenomenal. She works for the ASPCA. She does forensics medicine. And she has her own story in vet med. And we use each other, you know, as support in this in this journey. I didn't realize that that was that she was a forensic veterinarian. So you know that I'm going to be interviewing her for this show, because that (laughs) is such an interesting career path. Um, And also ASPCA, I mean, the show originates in New York. So the A, as we all know, it it is is certainly an extraordinary place to be. Blend is what you've now, that's where you're your life's work is at the moment, am I right, is in educating outreach. I mean, you have a most extraordinary group of people at BlendVet. And if anyone's curious to see lots of faces that look different, if you're a white person, that is to say, um, go to Blend. Is it BlendVet.com or Blend.com, Nicole? It's blend.vet. Blend.vet. It's It's a beautiful website, but there's all these people that are just marvelous looking. And you can see there, they come from some of them, you know, Asian backgrounds, and some of it is, is diversity around gender. And it's just great that you've got these people who are now also making it their mission to diversify a field that has been white and male. Now, we know that now, it's mostly white and female, heavily female. So being a male is going to become some kind of a sort of minority, possibly, in the veterinary community. But what about the topic, since this is what the work that you're doing, topic that that Quan Stewart brought up about there not being enough veterinarians, period, not just of color, and not being enough vet schools and not being enough positions. And I think it's kind of a well-known bromide that vet schools have made sure they're aren't too many vets and kind of giving 
job security to those who can get into vet school and get out of vet school and start being a veterinarian. Are you trying, does, is it on your agenda at all to try and have more vet schools that would therefore possibly mean more inclusion? Or is that is that thinking too far outside the box? Well, I don't think it's outside of the box. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a proponent of going outside of the box. That's often, for sure. But I, I think that right now I want to fix what's in the box already because I yes. think that it's hard to keep people in this profession when they don't feel like they belong. And that can cross over besides just racial, you know, this crosses into all of the identities that you yes. can have, whether it be, you know, sexual orientation or our abilities and all of that. And so making sure that everybody has a place within veterinary medicine and realizing that this also goes into the communities that we serve because we're a two part, you know, we're, we have to take care of our own, but we have to take care of of another community, um, which is our clients and their pets. Right? right. And so we have to make sure that we are good within ourselves so that we can be better stewards and servants of the communities that we serve. And so for me, just being in this industry, I have definitely seen firsthand the, the toxic work cultures that we have and how that, you know, makes people not want to stay in their industry in this industry at all but certainly not within the hospital that they're working at and that constant turnover is another form of stress that we are seeing and so while it's great to think about how we can improve the pipelines and and really open up those avenues for people to go to different veterinary schools i worry about the culture that we're inviting them to i Mm -hmm. think that we have a culture issue that we have to address And that's what I have been trying to focus on more because I already know that there's people doing that work. There's already new vet schools that are already being built. Oh, good. I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So there are new schools that are coming up, but it's more of like what kind of programming are we going to have in place so that these, you know, new colleagues that join us have an understanding of what they're really walking into and what they should be demanding of us as an industry, but also for us in the industry already understanding that times are changing. The demographics of our country are changing and the things that make us better doctors is our ability to communicate, communicate, grow trust with people. And that requires us when the demographics of, of our world is changing to have some cultural humility, to have some understanding of differences between people and making sure that if you can't be all of those things, because I certainly am not all those things, but I hire intentionally to make sure that I have all those things. And so that's my goal in my side of it. Like, I don't know if I can, I feel like I got a big project already. Yeah, you you do. I don't know if I can help, you know, except to support. So if as those schools come into play, our hope is, is that they will be open to that type of training and having that available for their students um, because it's so important that everybody be on the same page. It makes us better as a profession, but it also makes us better as people. You've said it so well. The the concept of cultural humility is fascinating. I didn't mean to put more work on your plate. Haha. I just meant that. <laughs> Don't worry. Know, it's not that I haven't thought about it. No, it's of course you I'm have. Like... You're 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 a you're a very mentally lively person, and you've surrounded yourself by extraordinary sort of leading lights in the in the veterinary field. It's clear when you, you look at their bios and and what they're doing as part of Blend. I, I, I'm not saying, you know, oh, never mind the 20 or the 30 vet schools that are already there. They probably can't be fixed. Let's start fresh. I didn't mean that at all. But I'm just wondering, um, in starting fresh, could 
you don't have to set a reset button maybe, but who knows? It's a culture. It's a society. Our society has these issues, obviously, and, and they just get reflected in, in the veterinary field. A quick question about doctors in general. We only have a little bit of time left, but what does it seem to you about there being diversity in human medicine? Is there more diversity in, in your mind in human medicine when you go to a doctor for yourself? Do you find that there are uh, some good s- sprinkling or amount of black doctors or not? I mean, we I think a lot of us in, in that get medical care are kind of aware of a lot of Indians, East Indians maybe, but maybe not so many black doctors or am I just not seeing them because I live in Vermont, which is the whitest place on earth. Are, are you finding well, black doctors for humans? Well, I do think that they have a diversity issue on the human side as well, but there might not be as it, it's like red zone as we are. Right, right. Um, but I think that they're pretty close. I don't know their numbers and I probably should look into that. Like, but you know, for, for me, I've always been very intentional about making sure that my doctors were of color. Nice. Um, just for the level of just, you know, Again, comfort, yes. which is the same thing that we would want for our veterinarian, yep. you know, and our clientele. Like they, there's a sense of comfort when I walk into the room, and they see me because I look like them yes. or their cousin or their niece, and mm-hmm. I speak some Spanish. I'm not fluent, but I right. speak enough to try to have those conversations with them. And so I think that matters. Um, I shared recently that I had my own experience in that where I um, needed to see a neurologist. I'm suffering from migraines and I didn't really pay attention to who they booked me with. I just needed to see a neurologist. And up until the time the doctor walked in, I still had no idea demographically what that doctor was until she walked in. And when she walked in, she was a black woman. Cool. And that I, for the first time, I had that, you know, moment that I've seen my clients have where you take that deep breath, like, thank you, you know, and to me, that matters. Um, And, you know, my cousin is a pediatrician and she, you know, is, does such great work being in that hospital because she is bilingual and what she can provide that others cannot. And so, you know, I do think that it matters. I think the human, um, the human health care is, is probably in a better state than we are, but I don't think that they're far ahead of us. I think that they still have very similar challenges. And a, um, and a distance to go. Nicole, we've yeah. run out of time. I just want to say what you're doing in the vet space for the people and eventually for the pets too is fabulous. And I'm very, very, very happy to have met you and very happy to continue to watch the work that Blend does. Please thank everyone that works with you for being pioneers in such an important way. And I'm going to get in touch with your sister and find out what a forensic veterinarian (laughs) does. she might get me. Thank you. Take care. Thanks again. You too. Okay. Thank you for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will support all of these companies because they stand behind my mission, which is to bring you delightfully informative pet talk radio. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. They make many non-chemical products for the inside and outside of your pets, as well as innovative foods like no-hide chews and the hybrid dry food wisdom, which sometimes is all that my Weimaraner Maisie will eat. 
I'm very grateful also to Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two extraordinary women, Allison and Hannah, who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches. It's higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thanks again for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this one guest version of Dog Talk and Kitties 2, and we'll listen to other episodes sometime soon.